Let us pray and ask God's blessing upon the preaching of his word. Once again, Lord, we come before you with uh, hearts that are eager to receive your truth, and that by the power of your Spirit that we would be able to um, desire to obey, and that we would be flooded with a new and fresh appreciation for the glory of the gospel. In your name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please open them to Romans chapter 15. We'll be looking at verses 8 through 13 this morning. Romans 15, verses 8 through 13. Please listen as I read. This is God's word. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, and he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in this is God's Word. The triune God is glorified when Jews and Gentiles worship Him in humility and hope. Triune God is glorified when Jews and Gentiles worship Him together in humility and hope. That has been the theme of the book of Romans. In fact, we are now at a stage where most scholars would say the main content of the letter wraps up. This is the end of Paul's formal teaching. The rest is some encouragement and some greetings and some summary statements. And while the entire book is inspired from start to finish, along with all of his letters and everything in both the Old and New Testament, in terms of the structure of the letter, that, that might be the case. Uh, we have seen, as the book has progressed, these massive themes roll through and reveal to us God's plan of salvation, the arc of redemptive history from creation through the fall, through redemption and the ultimate restoration and resurrection and the making new of all things. And here, when Paul puts a sharper point on everything that he has been talking about beginning in chapter 12, where he says that we are living sacrifices, he wraps it up with the most extraordinary statements about the glory of God and about how welcoming people together in the body of Christ exalts and glorifies the Savior who bought them. 
Now, you remember last week in verse 7 of chapter 15, that was what we used to tie in the discussion about welcoming people back in Romans 14, verse 1, and then again in verse 3. And verse 7 is interesting because it begins with the word therefore, and, and really it both sums up the first section and introduces the second one. Uh, you could say as a result of everything from chapter 14, verse 1, up until 15, verse 6, therefore, and then he summarizes welcoming people in the glory of God. Or you could say, therefore, we welcome people to the glory of God, and then he'll explain why in verses 8 through 13. So this morning, we're really going to pick up verse 7 again, and we're going to fit it into a bigger discussion. And in that, we're going to cover three very important subjects. Glory, humility, and hope. Glory, humility, and hope. These are the themes that become clear to us as we look at this particular section in Romans. So follow along as we go back to the beginning. Verse 8 we'll talk about glory. Paul says, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. You see, the glorifying of God is the main theme. It's the main point. Why does the church gather? The church gathers to glorify God. Why did God create a plan of redemption? Because it glorifies him. Why did God ordain that sin would be and that a world would experience the curse that would result in the death of his own son? Because in the end, it will bring him glory. Everything exists to bring him glory. In fact, even our eating and our drinking from the previous section is supposed to be done for his glory. One eats for the glory of God or doesn't eat for the glory of God. Everything we do is meant to be for the glory of God. And even as we gather, when it comes to worship, it is to be done for the glory of God, not just in the way that we glorify him by our singing, but in the way that he is glorified by our union and by our fellowship and by lives that live out the truth of the gospel. And so it's interesting that he says that both the Jews and the Gentiles glorify God in the gospel. Let's look at the Jews first. The Jews are said to glorify God because in the coming of Christ, he fulfilled all of the promises that God had made to the patriarchs and therefore proved himself truthful. What were those promises? Well, look back into Romans chapter 4 and we'll have a reminder because this is where Paul began unpacking it. Romans chapter 4. In verse 13, we read this. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. There is nothing deserving of wrath. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead, and calls into existence the things that did not exist. You see, there it is. 
It's the hope, it's the glory, it's the promise. It's the reality that all that was given to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant was to be fulfilled, not just through him and his offspring, the Jews, but also through all of the nations that through him were able to model that same faith and put their trust in the gospel, which is a gospel that saves, not through law, but through grace. Now, this doesn't eliminate the law. It doesn't say the law doesn't matter. It doesn't say the law doesn't count. It doesn't say God was wrong in giving the law. But it says that one will come who is great enough to fulfill that law perfectly, and then that righteousness will be imputed to the ones who never could. Earlier, Dave referenced Psalm 15, and what a great ambition it would be for us all to live the way that that person is meant to be if they are to survive being on the holy hill of God. But we know even as believers that our residual sin nature doesn't allow us to do that. Doesn't that cause us to be filled with such hope that one day even that flesh will be redeemed and will be given new bodies that are not susceptible to sin? Then we will dwell with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth when the new Jerusalem is here and we will experience his glory forever as those welcomed in because of the righteousness of Christ. That was all promised through Abraham. Now this is also meant to be, though, a time for the Gentiles to give God the glory for his mercy. The Gentiles are to give God glory for his mercy. And the reason why they understand this to be merciful is that though the covenant was not originally made with them, that God made a way for them to be grafted in. Remember the illustration from Romans chapter 9 through 11, where Paul says, yes, the Jews did reject the law of God. They did turn their back on Christ. They, they did, because of their rebellion, receive the judgment that he said would come to them. However, he said it was through that rejection that God provided a light for the Gentiles to see the truth of the gospel, and they were grafted in then as equal participants, equal recipients of all of the blessings that the covenant was meant to extend to the Jews. And therefore, there is only one people of God, and there always has been, always will be. They are the ones who are united together by faith, not by genealogy. God cares nothing for where you come from, what tribe, tongue, people, nation, gender, socioeconomic status, or religious background. What he cares about is your faith and your faith in Christ and a faith that was given to you as a gift. And that is why the Gentiles rejoice. They rejoice in his mercy. I'm going to come back to that at the end because I think it's really important, but before we can understand his mercy, uh, we have to understand the next part, which is humility. You see, Paul says that these Gentiles are celebrating the mercy of God and that's somewhat ironic given the fact that God has promised in his word to destroy the nations. Now, he gives four illustrations. Paul reaches back into the Old Covenant and he gives four illustrations. Why is it that Gentiles are to be humble? Why is it that Gentiles are, are to understand the mercy of God? And he gives four examples. Now, take a look, and they're given to you in your Bible. He says, it is written... And again, and again, and Isaiah says. Now, if you want to just make a note of this, if your Bible doesn't have these notations, the first is from Psalm 1849. Psalm 1849. This is, again, a psalm that celebrates the, the power of God as he conquers his enemies. 
The second one that you're going to see there, the part where it says in verse 10, and again it is said, that comes from Deuteronomy 32, 43. Verse 11 and says, and again, and this is from Psalm 117 and verse 1, and also from Isaiah, the fourth quotation, Isaiah 11, verse 10 and verse 1. So what you have here is Paul reaching back into the Old Covenant, and he is drawing on these quotations, and he is using them to describe the fact that the Gentiles have received mercy even in the context of judgment. And I'll go back to the very first one because it's fascinating. It is from Psalm 1849, but Psalm 1849 borrows the language from a song that goes all the way back to 2 Samuel 22. And I want to tell you a little bit of the story because the context matters. We're never really going to understand the meaning of the story if you don't understand the context. This is Paul doing some good biblical theology. Paul doesn't just drill down into one verse in this New Testament canon and try to extract from it everything. Instead, he zooms back and he says, I want to understand how this fits into the whole story of redemptive history. Where does this fit into the whole Bible? And he reaches back and, and, and he grabs this verse from... 2 Samuel 22, and here's the context. Um, David has been out fighting wars. He's been fighting the Philistines. He's been fighting giants, quite literally fighting giants. And in fact, in the chapter right before this, he's fighting giants that have six fingers and six toes. It's like that scene in The Princess Bride. He says, I see you've got six fingers on your right hand. Someone's been looking for you. But this is real. These are real giants. These are real people with six fingers and six toes. I mean, and David's out there and he's fighting them. And when he's completely defeated his enemies and he has killed all of those Gentile nations that are coming in to threaten his kingdom and his land, he writes a song about it. And he writes this long song that glorifies God for the destruction of the Gentiles. Why would Paul reach back and use a line from a song that celebrates the destruction of the Gentiles to tell the Gentiles that they should celebrate the mercy of God? He's not done. The next one comes from Deuteronomy 32. Now, in Deuteronomy 32, Moses is wrapping up his career. Moses knows he's going to die soon. And so Moses gathers all the people together, and especially the leadership, and he says, I want you to know that I've given you God's law, and I want you to know that you're not going to follow it. I've given you God's law, I've explained his desire, I've laid out for you his principles, but I know what your heart is like, and you're not going to obey, you're not going to follow him. In fact, you are just going to go on sinning, going on rejecting him. So it wasn't exactly the most positive meeting with the leadership right before he dies. But he says, after he's given them all of this instruction, he's given them all of this warning, he also writes a song. And he writes the song, and it's given to us in Deuteronomy 32, and he writes a song to God. And in this song, he lays out all of his hope for that nation, the reality that they will fall. But that in the end, God will recover them and establish them and build them up and wipe out their enemies and once again destroy the nations. And so Paul reaches back and from this hit list of anti-Gentile songs, pulls yet another line. 
and says, for this reason you ought to thank God for his mercy. Now, if they knew the song, they'd be playing the song in their head and they would be saying, Paul, this is not a good song for us. Like this, this is not one of the songs that we like to sing. Why would I be celebrating the destruction of my people? But that's exactly what David does. It's exactly what Moses does. Now, in Psalm 117.1, which is the next quotation, uh, this is one of the very short psalms in the Bible, and all it does is really extol the glory of the all-powerful God as he moves through the earth, accomplishing his purposes. And once again, his purposes to establish his people, his king, and his lordship, and his rule over the nations that he says is like ruling with a rod of iron. Who does that come from? Who is that ruler? That ruler is Christ. It's so interesting to me that David, in the chapter preceding the song that he wrote as he's out there fighting in the battle, he grows weary. In fact, he grows so weary that he is collapsing and there is this giant who is about to kill him. And fortunately, some of his men and even some of his family members come along and rescue him. And they say to David, okay, David, no more fighting for you. You're not allowed to go out there and and be fighting these battles because we can't afford to lose you. We have no like key man policy that's going to make it possible for us to continue if you die. So you are the king. You got to stay back. Let us do the fighting. Isn't it wonderful that the better David, the greater David, the ultimate David, the son of David, Jesus Christ came and, and he came and he was able to defeat all of his enemies. That in his weakness, he didn't just stumble, he actually died, but he died in glorious power, overcoming and overthrowing sin and death and hell and all the principalities and rulers that we can't see. That is the one who was forecast in this last quote. And so Paul says, the Gentiles ought to celebrate because of what we see in Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, two quotes from verse 10 and from verse 1. He doesn't do them in order. And if you're an apostle writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't have to either. He says, for the purposes of this letter, this is how he wants to express it. And he expresses it by going back to this amazing statement that Isaiah makes. And and let me give you the context again, because the context is critical. Isaiah is writing to the nation of Israel in anticipation of their destruction. And for the first several chapters of the books, he lays out the absolute decimation of the nations. They are like a forest that has been cut down and burned. But then he says, because of your disobedience, Israel, your tree is going to be cut down too. The difference is all of these other nations, all the forests of all the other nations, all of those stumps out there are not going to come back again. But in your case life will spring up. And so when he says here the the root of Jesse, you don't want to make a note. The word root there could be just as well translated stump. Uh, This is the, the burned up stump, and it's the stump of Jesse. He doesn't say David. I mean, David was the king. David was the one that people saw as the one who had the, 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 the was a man after God's own heart. Uh, he was the, the king of the glory of Israel. Uh, Jesse was a, was a peasant. But he says, from the smoldering, cut down stump of this peasant, Jesse's line will come a branch. And this branch, by the way, it's like in Isaiah 53. It's a scraggly branch. It's a, it's a sucker. It's an offshoot. It's, it's not some glorious thing, but there is a sign of life. There's a sign of hope. 
And from this little sign of hope will come ultimately the Redeemer. And so with all of this in mind, let's go back and look at it from Paul's perspective. He says that the Gentiles will glorify God because of his mercy. Because, as it says in 2 Samuel 22 and in Psalm 18, 49, you will praise God and he will be praised among the Gentiles. You're going to sing to his great name. And again in Deuteronomy 32, 43, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Join the people of God in this one community of children of God as you glorify him for what he has done. And again in Psalm 117, verse 1, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, not just you Jews. Extol him, all of the peoples, even those who were crushed in his furious wrath, because out of them comes a remnant too that would be saved. And then finally in Isaiah 11, from this stump of peasant Jesse will come one who arises to rule, and he rules the Gentiles. But please notice what he says. He rules the Gentiles in hope. Oh, beloved. Can you rejoice in the one who rules you? We spent a lot of time last week talking about the glory of the lordship of Jesus Christ. And the reason why we celebrate that is because his lordship and his rule is a rule of mercy. And it leads to hope. It's one thing to talk about the Lordship of Christ and to be burdened under a weight of guilt because you never seem to live up to the expectations and the standards. There's a challenge in certain circles within evangelicalism where they extol the Lordship of Christ, but then in order to have assurance in their salvation, they have to line up their lives with all of these key performance indicators And if they fall short of any of these, they begin to doubt whether or not they're truly saved. Or their salvation in their own mind is secure because they do a very good job checking off all these little boxes. The reality of the situation is this. The Lordship of Christ is a rule. It is a domination. It is a rule with a rod of iron but it's a merciful rule. It's a rule that brings with it the power of the Holy Spirit to live lives that bring glory to Him on account of the finished work of Christ. You see, lordship without mercy is tyranny. And if you are living a Christian life of tyranny, fearful, all the time of how well you're doing relative to some sort of standard of righteousness, then you have adulterated the lordship of Christ and you have made him a tyrant. However, lordship with mercy leads to peace and joy and hope. Peace that comes from knowing that The sacrifice has been made. Joy from knowing that he has filled you with his spirit and given you his righteousness and hope that is the hope that when you stand before him one day, you will be able to do so blameless and with great joy. And so the glory of God is seen when he through his mercy rules his people and causes them to feel joy and peace and hope. 
And he is glorified when Jew and Gentile alike, coming together into that one vine, are able to worship him in both humility and hope. Humility that says, I don't belong, I don't deserve it, it is all of your grace. And hope that says, in light of your grace and in light of what you have done, I can with boldness approach the throne of grace and ask for help in time of need. Isn't that a wonderful solution to the problem? Isn't that a glorious way to live your Christian life? That doesn't diminish a desire for personal holiness. In fact, it elevates it. What that does is it replaces common works of goodness in the hopes of meriting favor with genuine spirit-filled works of righteousness and holiness as a manifestation of what God's done inside of you already. It's fruits. So, we've talked about glory. We've talked about humility. Now, let's talk about that hope. It comes to us here in verse 13. Really, it plays off the last bit of verse 12 and into verse 13. So, it's a beautiful benediction. He says this, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. What does it mean to abound in hope? Only those who have understood the finished work of Christ can abound in hope. Only God can fill you with hope and fill you with joy and fill you with peace if it is a peace and a joy and a hope that is based on believing. And what is the believing anchor to? The believing is anchored to believing in the gospel. I was thinking about that just this week. There's a commonly referenced section in the book of Hebrews, and it's a challenge sometimes for folks, and I'd like you to just look at it with me. Hebrews chapter 10 Beginning in verse 26, we read this, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, if you're raised to believe that your eternal security is based upon your daily performance, then you would be tempted to believe that if you go on sinning a certain sin, even after you have been converted, that you ought to be living in dread of the fact that that sin that you continue to sin may be a sin that ultimately separates you from the love of God. However, if you understand this properly, what you're going to see is that the going on sinning is merely an indication of someone who's never believed in the first place. The going on sinning people are the going on not believing people. The going on sinning people are the the going on unconverted people. Believe me, there's not any reason for any genuinely converted person, any Christian to ever fear the fiery judgment of God as he consumes his adversaries. If you've grown up in a system that teaches that, you have been taught wrong. One of the foundational teachings of the doctrines of grace, of the Reformation, is the perseverance of the saints. means that you can never lose your salvation. The salvation that you have is secured in Christ in His work, not yours. The going on sinning here is the going on not believing, the going on not confessing Christ as your Savior, the going on not believing. 
not the going on living according to standards of righteousness imposed upon us by others. Be encouraged this morning. The hope that you have is not a hope based on your righteousness, it's a hope that you have based on Christ's righteousness. And this came back to me as I was listening to a song this week called Not Yet Not I, But Christ Through Me. Let me, list, let me just read this um, stanza to you. It's one of my favorite. It goes like this. No fate I dread. I know I am forgiven. The future sure, the price it has been paid. For Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon. And he was raised to overthrow the grave. To this I hold, my sin has been defeated. Jesus, now and ever is my plea. Oh, the chains are released, I can sing, I am free, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Amen? That is why you can sing, come ye sinner, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. He is able, he is able, he is willing, doubt no more. Come ye needy, come and welcome, God's free bounty glorified, true belief and true repentance, every grace that brings you nigh. Without money, without money, come to Jesus Christ and buy. Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall, if you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous, sinners Jesus came to call. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. This he gives you, this he gives you, till the Spirit's rising beam. Lo, the incarnate God ascended, pleads the merit of his blood. Venture on him, venture wholly. Let no other trust intrude. None but Jesus, none but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Let us pray. Father in heaven, as we prepare to receive the symbols of your body and blood that secured that hope for us, I pray that you would secure in our minds the glory of your finished work, the perfect David, the perfect Moses, the perfect Abraham, the perfect Adam, the one who came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. The one who planted within men like Paul the understanding of law and grace, of your unalterable standard, and yet your unstoppable desire to purchase back for yourself those who have been separated from you because of sin. Father, I pray that today would be a day where you are glorified through the singing of Jews and Gentiles alike gathering together to celebrate your mercy. You are a ruler, you are the Lord, but you are a merciful Lord. I ask that you would fill us with the peace that comes from knowing that. 
Father, as we come before you with our needs to be presented, we ask that you would also fill our mouths and our minds with Scripture-filled language that allows us to articulate our grievances and our complaints while at the still same time calling upon you as the ever-faithful and trustworthy Savior. And may all of our prayers, even our prayers that come from hearts that are broken, end with praise and with an immutable confidence in your sovereignty and in your goodness. Lord, I ask as we prepare to celebrate that reality today that our hearts would do so with overflowing joy for all that you have done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, whose name we pray. Amen.